Well, uh, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you for coming into this final uh, panel session for Cool Logistics Global Virtual, first edition, 2020. For those of you who uh, went into our networking room at lunch, I hope you had uh, some lively and productive conversation. Um, so just a couple of uh, housekeeping reminders as we head into this last session. Um, after this session finishes, uh, we have a, uh, an open mic session at um, 4 p.m. 1600 BST. Uh, you'll be able to come in just as you do at lunchtime and uh, chat with fellow delegates and share screens. And then you're all kindly invited courtesy of uh, Steve Cameron, uh, our moderator this year for the first day of the conference to join him and uh, friends um, at the virtual London Mystery Maritime Martini Club where we will raise a glass to each other and um, if you wish um, you'll be taught how to make a great martini. Um, so that's it for me until the end of the session but let me just give you a little bit of context. So this final session we've got uh, three presenters uh, to finish up. Uh, we're going to start um, <clears throat> with thanks for his attendance, with a conversation uh, with Captain uh, Professor Paranesh Kohli. Uh, some of you may have seen him when he spoke at uh, one of our live events a number of years ago. Um, he's an expert on India cold chain. Um, now, uh, I think, retired from active service, you might say, uh, but many decades uh, working in cold chain at the highest levels in India. And as today, we were really focused on, and yesterday indeed, you know, having perspectives from different major cold chain markets on what's happening. We've looked at Asia, we've looked at Middle East, we've looked at Latin America, um, we've looked at Africa today. We thought it'd be great to close up by having just a conversation with Powernesh because people make this thing go round. So really take his views on his journey, state of the market, what he thinks about what's next for uh, cold chain in, in, in India. Uh, we're then gonna move on uh, to speak with Julian Galvis. He's a VP Sales America, Americas, Marine and Ports for Identec Solutions. And thank you also Julian and Identec for your um, sponsorship support. Um, Identec's a tech company. Uh, Julian's gonna focus on uh, the reefer um, operations um, at ports and terminals, uh, particularly with a focus on energy. Uh, sustainability being a big issue, but energy management, energy reduction um, for uh, reefers as they pass through multiple terminal nodes around the world. And then last but not least, uh, welcome back, Ted. We saw you live in person last year and we have you now virtually. Ted Prince, um, and he's co-founder, and chief strategy officer of Tiger Cool Express in the USA. Um, again, for those of you who joined our sessions earlier, uh, I think pretty much every session we've had today has referred to reefer on rail and, and its potential to contribute to, to the cold chain. Uh, we heard about it from South Africa, uh, Ethiopia, uh, Japan. Um, Ted has uh, pioneered this within the USA, so he's going to close up by uh, giving a perspective um, on the market there. So um, thank you very much, and I hope very much you enjoy the session. So, so let's let's kick off. Um, Pawanesh, uh, thank you for joining us in the evening, not long before you're off to dinner. Um, so wanted to start by just 
as I said, you've been in the market for, for you know for decades, focusing in this area. Could you just start by like sharing your journey, like how you've come to uh, be in this market? Thank you, Rachel. It's been eight years since I was on Cool Logistics, I think. And uh, uh, first of all, I must uh, uh, laud you, commend you, uh, congratulate you on getting cited as one of the hundred uh, top hundred women in in uh, cold chain in cold supply chain. Thank Great. you, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Rachel. I've been uh, for decades actually in shipping. Earlier, uh, I was a shipmaster. I joined shipping sometime in, in, in 1981. Um, uh, there was uh, a lot of the normal was broken then. Uh, we got first the satellite navigator and we didn't have to shoot the uh, uh, stars anymore. And then we had the GPS. I remember my first um, reefer ship um, where everything was loaded by hand, boxes, climbing upside doors, uh, we used to leave a tunnel inside each hold from the battery space to the side doors. The battery space is where, for those who aren't sailors or haven't seen on reefer ships, where the, the fans are set up and actually go sniffing around like dogs for, uh, for ripening bananas. And if you did find them, open the side door and throw them overboard. Uh, I also uh, commanded what was then the world's largest uh, uh, reefer container ship until the next one came about, so on and so forth. So I had a lot of experience in actual uh, on reefer ships, uh, reefer containers, uh, spent 27 years out at sea actually. Uh, I had a very interesting time because uh, I would apply myself to uh, various amounts, uh, types of research that was happening, um, why fruit that was growing up on hillocks was slightly thinner skinned, and if you could drop the temperature half a degree more or less for them, uh, what sort of effect it would have on its holding life. Uh, when we would uh, travel from, say, Philippines into Japan, it was just a four-day run. Uh, there was not enough time to, uh, on the return to uh, do maintenance on our generator sets, almost one uh, megawatt of generating power on those ships. Uh, so I used to experiment at a huge amount of risk on... Uh, uh, cycling the cooling in different holes at different times so that I had some uh, time off uh, per generator to do overhauls. Um, so that was a totally different kind of life from when I came back to India. I never worked in India before till 2007. Uh, and I found that in India, despite all the uh, infrastructure in terms of cold stores that were around, there was no effective cold chain. So I'm a pretty loud mouth. <laughs> and it's uh, uh, so what happened eventually was in 2012 uh, I was uh, invited by the, uh, the government to come in and help incubate uh, a new center that they were creating uh, the National Center for Culture and Development it was pretty intriguing uh, one didn't want to work for the government uh, at that time huge amount of trepidation I actually started off pro bono only giving them a little bit of time to help them shape that body but uh, I was planning to leave that, uh, uh, give up that role uh, within six or eight months. But by the end of that time, uh, I was so involved. Uh, uh, I still had to be coaxed to give three days a week for them. Uh, by 2014, 
I was its founding CEO and I was heading the whole thing. And the unique thing about uh, what happened then in the government of India, can I take you back a little bit to India's uh, Colchin storyline? Uh, yeah, absolutely, yes. Which we wanted to touch on as well. So, Okay, so uh, I'll go way back, um, 1800s. Uh, Frederick Tudor from uh, uh, from uh, New England, U.S. Uh, started off started shipping ice into India into Calcutta, and uh, a lot of uh, manipulation. The Anglian uh, government here, uh, you know, waved off certain tariff and non-tariff barriers. No custom duty, no clearances. Ice was coming into India. Ice used to come from um, the hills and the Himalayas. Uh, piecemeal, but this is when he shipped for the first time. This was in, actually in 1833, 180 tons of ice uh, over four months. And when he landed, he had 100 tons uh, to sell. Um, and he made what was equivalent of almost a quarter million dollars out of that one shipment of 100 tons. Uh, this started off a regular trade. It was his most profitable route uh, from uh, North America all the way down to India. Uh, the Italians tried to come in and jump into that market because the market had developed. The cold chain, the actual literal ice cold chain, had opened up a market. But he had his monopolies and he wouldn't let them come in. Um, until uh, the 1850s, India went through its great uh, mutiny. Uh, uh, and then 1860s, uh, you had the civil war in in US, so that thing got disrupted. There was a disruption. I'm touching on these points because we have disruptions today now. Yeah, and that disruption gave uh, gave leeway to upcoming technologies, which was mechanized ice making, and those ice plants started off. Um, and then, by the time India turned independent, we had about 70 ice making plants. We had only about 30 very small cold stores in the country. Um, the focus throughout was the, the term cold chain wasn't in use. Everyone, when they wanted to define a, a reefer train or a reefer container uh, or a cold chain unit like that, it was always written down as cold storage depots, cold storage trains, cold storage wagon, cold storage ships. Cold storage was only a qualifier. It actually inferred the cold chain. It meant refrigerated and with certain processes. However, in India, uh, the, the, the phrase cold storage stuck on. Now, storage is a means of storing something. But even we started calling our cold stores cold storage. And our entire focus was on creating more and more cold stores. Uh, so jump forward to 2007, the government of India was investing a lot of money in building more and more cold stores, as some of you would be aware. Uh, India has the world's largest footprint of refrigerated warehouses. So when I speak logistics, I'm not talking only transport. These are the nodes. And we have 150 million cubic meters of cold storage space in the form of cold stores. Um, America has about 115 million cubic meters. China has about 90 million cubic meters. Now, we had huge amount of these uh, storage platforms, uh, but we were not actually seeing uh, cold chain movement of them. So in 2012, when I came in, one of the first things, one of my caveats for joining and helping create the National Center for Cold Chain Development was, it shall not be a scheme 
a program or a subsidy giving uh, mechanism. It will be a think tank to help guide and shape the strategies and policies of the government of India. And one of the first things we did was, uh, uh, first, there was a lot of convincing to be done. Uh, so far, what had happened was coal chain policies focused only on coal stores, driven largely by bureaucrats who had no practicing experience or by engineering companies who had a vested interest in selling equipment. Whereas the real coal chain operator and the user, the logistics people, the farmers, the traders, uh, they had no say, they had no by the way, uh, pittance that was served onto them, do this, do this, is, is how they were going about it. So it was actually hijacked. The coal chain policies uh, programs were hijacked by engineering companies and bureaucrats who claim to be experts in this. You will not believe that the Indian government or in India, even the phrase pack house was not uh, spoken of. So we said, okay, reduce the subsidies in, on coal stores strategically. We don't need more of them. Um, bring in these other components like reefer containers. So India actually subsidizes uh, reefer containers, purchase of reefer containers. Uh, bring in uh, pack houses. Um, bring in um, automation for energy efficiency, even bringing in rooftop solar panels for that infrastructure uh, so that they could offset the energy cost by net metering that. Uh, uh, dock levelers, uh, various small, small components, difficult to manage, but all of those were detailed, put down so that the opportunity to improve your operations was important. So for me, cold chain development is not infrastructure development. It is bringing in ease of doing cold chain, streamlining processes, making sure there's greater throughput and flow of uh, cold chain goods. Uh, so that took some convincing as well. A lot of vested interests were involved. Uh, a lot of fighting as well. <laughs> there was a, a lot, lot that had to go into it. But today, um, one can say, like we have about, uh, my last number in mind was about 130, 140 pack houses dedicated just for grapes. And grapes are very difficult to move, very sensitive, very short harvest life, very short holding life. Uh, these 135 or 140 pack houses today have placed India as one of the top exporters of grape in the world, uh, uh, which in turn resulted in farmers becoming more productive around their cultivation practices. Because if you have access to a market, to a consumption uh, uh, zone, then you are motivated and you're rightfully uh, uh, induced to do more. Earlier, our entire focus far as the back end was, was to produce more per, per, per hectare. You know, yield was measured by how much was output per unit area of land. One of the first things one had to do was no. You have to look at gainful productivity if you produce more and that all goes to rot. So how much do you deliver per hectare of land? Hence the concept of supply chains were brought in. Um, so there was a, a lot that one had to do here. And then, of course, also bring in synergies. Uh, too much uh, people working in silos. The pharmaceutical medical system was separate. The, the food system was going separate, so on and so forth. And too much was copy, cut, paste from uh, studies and reviews that were done elsewhere in the world. 
Very often, I, I piped in, I, I, I plugged in a couple of times uh, yesterday, and I was hearing about how so many coal stores per capita ratios. And those are the sort of things which would be picked up and driven. I, I'd like all of you to understand that the coal storage uh, space per capita in Europe or in America, where largely your meat eating people, is going to be unrelated to what is needed in that sort of space in India. What we need is more of the transport, more of containers. I'll tell you why. India is the world's largest uh, concentration of vegetarians, of plant eaters. Yeah? Uh, officially, it's 65% uh, uh, of the population declares themselves as uh, non-vegetarian, 35% as vegetarian. That's 470 million people, more than all the vegetarians in, all, in the entire world combined. Now, even of the 65% who claim to be non-vegetarian is a guilt psychosis in India. Yeah, Even if I have meat once a week or once in 15 days, I must declare myself non-vegetarian culturally. So actually, if you see the, uh, the share of vegetables on the Indian food plate, it's almost 95%. Meat is a side dish once in a blue moon. Yeah, So huge amount of demand, the world's largest concentration of uh, consumers of fruit and vegetables. Our cold chain is not going to be storing goods. Most fruit and vegetables can't be stored for long. It's a matter of weeks. So it has to move across in those couple of weeks to connect with wherever there is demand. So, uh, so it has to be correlated like that. There were too many reports. Uh, I, I, there's so many around which keep saying that uh, India has a population of 1.3 billion people. So it needs to double its cold storage capacity. That's, that's to no advantage. Uh, uh, what we need is to create more of aggregation to initiate the cold chain as close to production as possible. Uh, um, of, before we started here, I was saying how most logistics stock happens uh, from uh, one point to another point, origin to destination, and usually ports, you know, big hubs. But there is no cold chain logistics if there's no manufacturing unit or no production center. So we have to go backwards if we want to continue to have a cold chain. And where do we go backwards? One, if I'll, I'll close up quickly. One quick example is everyone says, uh, you know, uh, the farms are very small and fragmented, uh, which is the problem, which is why we can't have a cold chain. Let me tell you, India has one of the world's best cold chains when it comes to dairy, to milk. We are producing, this year we'll have produced almost 185, 189 million tons of milk. Our annual losses in milk are only one and a half percent. And nothing can be more fragmented than harvesting a cow for milk, milking a cow for just five liters of milk or 10 liters of milk. What happens there? At the first instance, at the first mile, the milk gets pulled and gets aggregated into a viable forward movement load. And then it moves in the name of the farmer or the group of farmers who pulled it together. And then they are paid the price at destination, a processor or the market or the cattle. The same thing is required from India's perspective along its uh, uh, fruit and vegetable chain. No matter how fragmented farms are, if you have created an aggregation platform at the first mile. It's the first science of any supply chain. Aggregate. You have a car factory, multiple assembly lines. The first thing is you assemble them together. The same thing over here. So 
that is one of the biggest focus areas to do. Uh, on the other aspects of bringing in intermodal movement, India's movements are not intermodal. There's a lot happening now. Hopefully, in the next few months, you're going to hear of a new national policy on logistics, huge thrust on intermodality, huge thrust on making sure there's more streamlined uh, systems. Uh, just yesterday, India also joined up the port community system as well, which was out of it. We have, or we last had around, I think, 140 inland container depots. At the moment, uh, 80 are active. Some had to be shut down, uh, not because purely because of uh, today's coronavirus crisis, um, also because some of them were overrun by our cities. Uh, so they had to either move out or, or somebody else had taken up their space. So th there's a lot of movement which happens in the exim trade. India's focus is subcontinental distances and almost zilch containerization when it comes to domestic uh, cold chain movement. Why? Because there's no palletization at the first mile. Mm. Because there's no aggregation at the first mile. So that's that's what needs to happen. And that sets off a lot of other models which benefit the weakest people in the chain, which is the farmers. Uh, my last little speech on, uh, uh, on, on uh, greening of the cold chain. I would also like to tell all of you who are listening on that yesterday, the International Solar Alliance announced a seventh program on solar heating and solar cooling. It's, it, it's, it's very special. Most people, when they look at solar power or solar energy, energy they correlate it to converting light into electricity and then running refrigeration. Uh, this entire program is actually designed around the other aspect of solar energy, heat directly converting heat, bypassing this conversion into electricity, heat into cooling. There's vapor absorption system, vapor adsorption system, and of course, utilize heat for heating purposes as well. Uh, that's going to bring about a huge change in how uh, cold chain energy aspects uh, are, are, are offset. I told you already since 2014 is when we launched that, uh, we allowed cold storages to put up, see the rooftop area of a cold store is never enough to generate enough solar electricity for its own captive use. So we said net meter it. The energy cost came down to half. Just feed the grid and offset your bills against what you have generated. Even when your cold store was empty, you were earning money in solar power. Uh, we also have mooted an idea that along our ports, uh, wherever and most countries are promoting LNG and liquefied natural gas moves in the cold chain. Uh, in fact, it's packaged in the cool at the first instance, down to minus 161 degrees. The cold is only a package to move it. One ship does the job of 600 ships. One acre of tanks does the job of 600 acres of tanks. But it has to be fed into the grid after it comes back to room temperatures. It's no longer cryogenic. And that's the entire sort of energy which is just thrown back to sea. They flush it to seawater or, or warm air. Now that once is captured, in India we're losing almost 15 gigawatts of energy just through LNG regasification. And one of the things ports have to do, and all ports in India have been told to uh, design in the master plans, uh, cold chains facility, including warehousing, including for containers, but also where possible to have over the fence warehousing, which will be zero energy. The world's first zero and uh, zero CO2 footprint uh, cold stores, 
and how that's going to disrupt the supply chain. The minute a container ship comes to that particular port, uh, the containers can be destuffed at the first instance, release the containers back to the shipping line. Why do they have to travel 2,000 kilometers into uh, inter, uh, ICDs and then there's demerage and there's freight and there's damage and all that. And then uh, if you have this sort of facility, which is very low cost because energy is almost literally free, uh, the, uh, the supply chain gets disrupted. You can start uh, freighting in bulk or more containers, store them and drip feed the market on demand. Of course, timelines involve around what sort of produce and what sort of product you're handling. Um, so uh, there's a lot that is happening in India. I mean, I'll carry on with the world's largest exporters of beef, albeit carrot beef, but the world's largest, and we're still continuing to do a lot of work over there. So there's a lot happening. If there are any specific questions or you want to provoke the conversation further, you've got to ask me questions. Yeah. Well, uh, we've addressed quite a lot of the issues we've written down and talked about um, uh, earlier. It's absolutely fascinating, um, um, Pawadesh. So it sounds from what you're saying, though, um, you know, as uh, you know, you stepped away um, from your role. Do you that you feel like good progress is being made in India? Um, what um, you know from from the work you've done? What would you say are today? You know, where 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 is India on that cold chain journey today? And what remain as the major kind of roadblocks uh, and barriers? And if you will. Um, as we've got representatives from all over the globe here, many of whom, you know, um, uh, are in nations that may also, you know, be lack. Well, we've been hearing lacking in cold chain ecosystem. You know, what what lessons would you would you share with uh, with them? Yeah. So the first thing is, the cold chain is not refrigeration. It's only the cooling is only a tool of the trade. The cold chain is actually manning, uh, managing uh, goods under care while using refrigeration. And, and sometimes breaches in the cold chain are possible and are okay. Maybe not okay with vaccines, maybe not okay with, uh, with ice cream, it will melt, but they're okay otherwise. Don't get so phobic around it. Understand, uh, get into the box, understand the goods that you're handling, and then apply cooling uh, for uh, buying time and use that time to reach where the price is right. So cold chain is not just about bridging distances, it's about bridging price gaps. The wedges in price, the farm gate is always going to be uh, the lowest possible price, it's a production area, and consumption somewhere is always going to be paying you more. Use the time you buy in the cold chain to connect to markets, and that not only feeds growth, it also makes sure there's more collaboration, more integration, more markets, it's more globalization, if that's still an okay word these days, but that's, uh, that's something uh, everyone must realize. Number two, always think in terms of throughputs. Uh, I used to literally uh, argue, explain to people like children uh, that, you know, just because India produces 315 million tons of fruits and vegetables, it does not mean I must create 100 million tons of storage. You know, out of the 315 million tons, 53 million tons is potato, which is storable. Two and a half million tons is apples, which are storable for a certain time. A certain amount is kiwis, but the rest of it, the grains, uh, our diet, even in the best of cold chains, only you only buy a week, two weeks, 15 days, and you can never sell them on the 15th day. 
so you you must uh, plan to move it through space and infrastructure and capacity to build a simple example i used to give was if my house has a 1000 liter overhead tank that's how we service uh, water in india it's not 24 piped so you, it fills up on overhead tanks and now until i have another baby in the house i'm going to only use 1000 liters of that tank every day you know and the tank's capacity is not 1000 liters it's 365 days 1000 liters so it's 365000 liters capacities measure capacities over time when i have another baby in the house i may use another 400 500 liters but if the government gives you a subsidy and says oh we will subsidize big storage tanks i will go and buy one tank for 10000 liters sized 10000 but its capacity will still be 365000 liters because out of that 1000 liter i'll use 1000 liters every day to refill 1000 liters every day so one is understand the difference between size and capacity and that means understanding the time any of the goods will reside within your space meats ice cream typically in the cold chain universe are buffered for about a week or 15 days maybe longer at the back end yeah fruits and vegetables the fourth day there is panic yeah so they must keep flowing so your existing capacities for fresh produce are in multiples for post autumn produce the third thing is never say shelf life as a cold chain person you've noticed i've never used the word shelf life i said buying time holding time selling time because the whole idea of a supply chain artist or supply chain scientist is to achieve shelf life on shelves so if i have if i have 12 days of handling time or holding time for tomatoes i must at least achieve two or three days shelf life for it to be sold on a shelf and still keep one or two days of shelf life on a kitchen shelf then i've done my job right it's not an academic exercise to say oh i managed 20 days out of tomatoes where in a in a laboratory yeah so uh, most of the high Uh, perishable and sensitive produce types uh, they will age while all of us sitting here um, look i think i look pretty damn young as well uh, we have <laughs> a nice life in the cold chain when air conditioned we all maintained ourselves i could go uh, play football soccer i was a goalie uh, get you know uh, a ball would hit me and bounce back but no matter how good i look right now how saleable i am right now if a ball hits me i'll be out for the day yeah so you when you age you cannot tolerate impact uh, injuries road travel dynamics so move goods prepare precondition and move them evacuate them as close to market as possible so most of the cold stores should actually be created closer to market and barring four or five crop types when you move them closer to market when they're young when you're young you're basically turgid you're fresh and full of moisture uh, so you can tolerate uh, the travels and then uh, you can do city travel later so uh, these are the key things to think about when you're designing cold chain and don't look at cooling as a savior cooling itself the process of cooling has huge pain points any cooling any space that you cool you're drying it out you know the moisture condensates on the on the on the cooling coils and you have a drain which leaks the water out and then you say my fruit or vegetables or my meat has dried out and then you'll pump in humidifiers so you have to understand what sort of 
uh, technologies are using basically delta T so that it, you don't suck the moisture out of the space because inherently cooling by nature is going to dry out that space. How do you manage that? So these are some, some technical aspects. But on the strategic aspect, the last thing, everything has to have one end outcome. So if you want growth, you have to have market expansion. And there is no denying cold chain if you want to grow around trade of perishables. Uh, I can keep becoming more and more productive out of my ice cream factory, out of my uh, farms. I can produce more than I consume and have more and more surpluses, but they'll all go to waste unless we connect with markets all the time. And like all logistics, you can't work in isolation. You can't say I'll only move everything one way. I'll only have one way traffic. I'll only sell to you. I have to look at the opportunity of what I can buy of you. The world has to be about collaboration. It can't be a one way traffic and everyone saying me first, me first, me first. Uh, so it has to be uh, all of us together first. Uh, if we do that, this is the only saving grace for humankind, the cold chain. We will have done it right because it does contribute a lot to climate uh, uh, greenhouse gases. On the other hand, it saves far more food loss and almost uh, almost 3 billion tons, 3 gigatons of carbon dioxide emissions which come out of food waste can get mitigated. Whole chain will always have 4, 5, 8 percent of losses, but not 30 or 40 percent. It's, it's a big game changer. It brings huge amount of socioeconomic value and it brings brotherhoods and kinships around the world. You know, Interesting, uh, Pawanesha, you, you've just described, you know, cold chain as the game changer. And we've been talking in the conference the last few days about what are ga game changers around different dimensions. But um, yes, that's the statement that's staying with me. Just the act of creating cold chain is in itself a, a, a game changer. So I, I'm just uh, checking our time for our last session, Pawanesh. Um, and thank you so much. I, I, made loads of notes and I'm glad we're going to have this, uh, we've, we're getting this recorded because I'll definitely want to listen again. Um, so it sounds like, you know, collaboration, um, gainful production, uh, throughput thinking, um, network thinking, um, that's a lot of what we've been talking about here the last few days and you're sort of giving us the lessons from India on, on that happening. So, you know, kind of just to finish us off now um you know the energy piece is very interesting as well in terms of green energy um uh, because obviously the bigger the cold chain the bigger in classic mode the energy draw we're going to be talking about energy in the next presentation so that's a that's an interesting observation so just uh, yeah as we finish up um on the journey that cold chain has been on in india as an integrated approach um you know what's what's left to do and who's going to make it happen uh, so in india it's all done by the private sector the government only provides earlier it used to be providing capital subsidies uh, uh, since last few years it's been also offering fiscal uh, benefits uh, designed around more throughputs it's not about creating infrastructure but the more service you do, the more throughputs you have, usually you have to pay GST for it. So that's exempt from activities such as um, preconditioning, which is uh, sorting, grading, packaging, pre-cooling, um, uh, staging, um, 
loading, unloading of vehicles, including uh, domestic transport of coal uh, on reefers and, uh, and on trucks. So uh, the whole design is to get people to see it as an attractive thing to get in and a necessary thing. Now, COVID has done that for us as well. It's the only logistic system which survived, uh, was resilient enough to cope up uh, with systems because yeah. as it is, it is by and large more organized. So uh, it has to be done uh, by the private sector with able uh, support uh, from the government because strategically it understands the importance of this. Uh, we are actually producing almost 1.4 billion tons of agricultural produce in this country and almost half a billion tons of that is perishable. Yeah, And uh, if we were to save what we lose, India can also start servicing other markets. And it's not just about servicing to make money for India, it's also about being one on spaceship Earth. It's also about strategic tie-ups. So that, that's going to be important. Um, as we go ahead, I see uh, just a few countries, India, the US, maybe China as well, who have sufficient agricultural areas to actually become the food baskets of the world. Look at where you're sitting. In 2015, when I came to speak at the House of Lords, I said then, uh, 2015, you had 48% of your food was coming from Africa. And the UK can't sit back and say, oh, we're pretty okay. We don't have much food loss uh, and we are fine. Today, 52%, I believe, is comes from Africa. You have to invest in Africa. It's because of you that in Africa that they cut off the beans at eight inches, even if the plant doesn't agree to grow them only eight inches if it's because you want to want it packaged like that. So that's part of the cold chain is not around geographies. It's about source and consumption and it has to be interlinked. Uh, but on this, I also like to say, here's an opportunity. At least I see that in India, I'm part of some planning process here, that when it comes to the vaccination as well, the existing cold chain, which was typically ignored and thought of only for food and a separate thing for vaccines, and it was not good enough, uh, they're all going to have to work together. Uh, we have uh, uh, food outlets, uh, your dominoes, your, 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 uh, your delivery people, each one has a small cold room and each one can be uh, brought into service for certain vaccine distribution. One quick example, uh, Delhi's population is 20 million, Greater Delhi is 40 million people. And we have about uh, 100 and about 200 hospitals over here, 10,000 hospitals in the entire country. You're not going to have 35 million people going to 200 hospitals to get vaccines. So that should be dispersed as close to people as possible. Uh, as I was discussing, if, if you and I were to give anyone a vaccine, we'd, man we'd manage um, one person every five minutes. That one person can only vaccinate 120 people in a 10 hour working day continuously. Uh, so how do you make sure that the COVID vaccine gets distributed in a widely dispersed way to everyone. Uh, to do that, you're going to have to leverage your entire existing cold chain infrastructure. You don't have to create something new unless it's minus 17. Yes. Yeah. And uh, but if you don't understand how to do it is where people, in my opinion, will make mistakes because the typical mindset I see all around the world is we will first vaccinate uh, our doctors, and uh, you know workers. So in 35 million people in Delhi, if I vaccinate only 300,000 people, a vaccine is not a prophylactic alone. It's not a condom that you wear to save yourself. 
right now the vaccine is some method to eradicate the virus by making sure it enforces herd immunity yeah so i must take up geographical cluster based vaccination i must have 4000 vaccination centers just in delhi to manage to vaccinate delhi in in 3 weeks and i need so many all across the country so that we have an entire zone achieves herd immunity through vaccination through immunization within 3 weeks and then the whole country does that and in india we do it uh, in in one form when we set up our voting systems 700 million people we set up voting centers for 700 million widely dispersed every every school <laughs> every little you know space uh, we make sure in phases the whole country is covered and that's how we have to approach this and for that it's not about creating one unit uh, see if you if you do piecemeal vaccination the biggest fear is you may protect those individuals but you will have exposed the virus to the vaccine it is already mutated 300 times in 10 months it will then mutate 300 times in 10 weeks and then you'll have to have another new vaccine coming out that's not the way to go about it and that's my biggest fear if some country even decides some states in america have decided we'll do mass scale vaccination yeah uh, great but the whole world has to do it otherwise we are in for a big bad world for the next 4 or 5 years this is not going to go away not an outcome that any of us uh, would desire in any shape or form um would well, powernesh thank you so much that's been a fascinating conversation and we could we could go on for a long time but uh, you, you know my takeaways in terms of the um the ecosystem approach um i'm thinking backwards from the point of consumption in different ways um i do hope that uh, the audience found that as fascinating as uh, as i did and um yes thank you again for um making time this evening to 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 share your experience with us thank you paranesh um so i'm i'm moving um on now and um as i said i think it's fitting that um energy you know uh, was a big part of what paranesh was talking about because you need a lot of it to power the cold chain and quite a lot of it to power reefers particularly in terminals um so it's a real pleasure to um invite uh, julian um to give us his presentation looking at uh, uh yeah technology and uh, energy uh you know in reefer terminals uh, julian uh, the floor is yours thank you rachel and uh, thank you professor um fascinating stuff i can't wait to go to domino's pizza and get my uh, a medium pepperoni and my covid vaccine at the same time so um uh particularly enjoyed the uh, the antidote about ice uh, it, it it's it's living here in the united states it's hard to believe that at one point the largest export uh and and basis of the economy was ice from the great lakes in the winter months so uh interesting stuff thank you um so yes uh those of you that know or are familiar with us we've participated in the show uh in this expo for a few years now uh you may be familiar with our uh reefer what we call reefer runner uh previously uh, known as Citas reefer. Uh it is a reefer monitoring solution uh that is agnostic. It connects to any manufacturer and at the moment of connection uh through the data serial port we are able to extract uh live data and transmit that uh to uh, mainly our our uh customer base is marine terminals uh, and inland facilities that handle reefers. Um Here you see an example uh, it's basically how it works it's it's a combination of hardware and software uh and we extract this data 
um, continuously and, and interface seamlessly with uh, this customer's operating system, sometimes known as a TOS. Um, uh, within this data, uh, typically for depending on the manufacturer can sometimes be 30 or more uh, data subsets, we're able to get, gather a calculation of the energy consumption. Uh, the energy consumption we get uh, up to the day, up to the minute, uh, real time, live, uh, how much energy each reefer is consuming. Uh, this was something that uh, at, at, the, at the commencement uh, of this engagement, we presented to the terminals and they thought, you know, it was very interesting, but I don't really know what to do beyond that. I mean, it's nice to know what it's consuming. Uh, and in, the, in recent years, uh, we've been able to develop this functionality even further. Uh, and really today what it does is for our product, it provides a value added uh, that maybe other solutions on the market don't uh, provide. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, uh, what we call energy monitoring and the difference between energy monitoring and then the next steps and where we're headed with the product and what we call energy management. Um, so uh, this is an example that I'm showing here. This is our dashboard that we provide uh, all of our customers. Uh, it is an it is a energy dashboard for a facility that handles reefer containers. Uh, at the top, you see the total power consumption, and we can have that breaking down broken down by yard physical yard block in the yard uh, to know how much energy is being consumed. Uh, in the middle, you see the bar graph, uh, and that is total consumption for the current day, uh, which you see in dark blue, uh, and in the light blue, you see day prior. Uh, so obviously, what if uh, I were a gambling man, based on the data that I'm showing here, uh, this is probably a terminal that had a large vessel, uh, probably last night or this morning, uh, evacuate or load many live reefers. And today they're just starting to receive, as you see, the consumption uh, current day is not, is, is not nearly as, uh, half as much as it was in the day prior. Uh, so the terminals are able to gather this information, these analytics, um, and, and, and track their energy consumption. Uh, at the bottom of the graph, we see calendar day, and that will show you um, energy consumed uh, in, in, in the calendar form. Um, <clears throat> this, is, this is very interesting. It kind of leads in uh, to, to my next slide. Um, as an industry, the, the terminal operator or, the, or the, the people that handle reefer containers have been told generally that uh, frozen is frozen and fresh is fresh. And, and, and those two consume at different levels. Uh, and, and as long as everything's frozen, that'll be one level which is less than what is fresh. Uh, it's a common misconception uh, that I see out there that I've been that I've heard from, the, from uh, operators and folks in operations. Um, and we have the data now, uh, enough data now to kind of prove uh, it, that's not always the case. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what uh, I'm gonna talk about. Um, so uh, quickly, just a few facts about energy. Uh, the, the reefer containers on a container handling facility typically account between 50 and 60% of the total energy consumption. Uh, the, the actual container handling equipment typically only accounts for about 10%. Um, we are seeing government regulations in different areas. Uh, for example, here in the United States, uh, it's called the, the CARB, the California Air Resource Board. Uh, it may be a dirty word with some of these manufacturers. They've had to comply with uh, some stringent regulations uh, in terms of uh, 
Freon or, or how these uh, units get cooled. Uh, and now the, the CARB is also looking at uh, energy. Uh, I, we have a customer uh, in California who's utilizing our system to help the lines ascertain a rebate uh, that the, the state is offering. Uh, and, and basically what it uh, revolves around is being able to prove um, at the end of the day that these reefers were hooked to shore power the maximum amount of time possible. Uh, they're trying to do everything possible to get away from these generator sets which consume diesel, which then pollute uh, the environment and obviously contribute to the carbon footprint. Um, so by using our system, we're able to differentiate uh, hertz. Uh, we know uh, that a reefer that is on uh, shore power, uh, the hertz output is different than when a reefer is on uh, a diesel generator. Uh, we're able to differentiate that. We're able to provide reports to these customers. And then they're in turn are able to turn that information over to the lines and show proof uh, of the fact that they are on uh, shore power when, when applicable. Uh, as the general uh, rule, the industry as a whole uh, consumes 14% more energy, the transportation and logistics uh, industry, 14% more energy today than they did 10 years ago. Uh, it's been growing at an average clip of 1.4% a year. Uh, in terms of electricity and what the cost associated, I've seen things uh, as low as three cents or five cents uh, on the dollar per kilowatt hour uh, to as high as places like Costa Rica. Uh, they're in the 22 cents plus. Uh, if you're not familiar with Costa Rica, some years ago they decided to get away from coal. Uh, you know, the, the country's motto is pura vida, the pure life. Um, in the in the near term, what that means is they had to make significant inv investments in the infrastructure to move to, to solar, to wind. Um, and in the short term, somebody has to pay for that, uh, and that's the consumer. Uh, so in a market like Costa Rica, it's been increasingly sensitive, uh, the price of electricity, uh, and folks are looking at this uh, as a way to look at consumption and look at ways to save money. Um, so what does this mean? Uh, is a typical container handling facility that stores, let's say, 500 reefers on a daily basis can spend anywhere between on the low end of $5,000 a day up to $10,000 a day. Uh, there is significant, uh, there is a significant cost associated. Uh, so uh, here's, a, here's a snapshot of, of where I sit in the Americas, for example, in South America, the energy consumption uh, per day uh, this information is gathered by an organization called CEPAL. It's a, it's a nonprofit um, in, in Chile. Uh, and you see there's, there's a great variance here. Uh, Argentina and Colombia, for example, are on the high end uh, of 80 plus kilowatt hours uh, per day. Uh, Chile and Brazil uh, on the lower end of the spectrum. Uh, what does this do to it? There's not, it's not that Chile and Colombia are using an older fleet excuse me, Argentina and Colombia are using an older fleet of reefers, uh, more inefficient. Um, basically, what this is attributed to, uh, and, and Captain, you, you spoke a little bit about this earlier, uh, is the, the length of stay. Uh, for example, in Brazil, the state of Paraná uh, has 11,000 reefer points, but only about 5,000 are located at the marine terminal. Uh, there is a huge infrastructure and network uh, in, 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 in Chile because of the beef in particular uh, and citrus uh, that supports the ports. Uh, 
in terms of a storage facility. Uh, and they're they're bearing a good portion of this uh, electrical cost, this electricity cost. Uh, they're they're taking that ter that container as late as possible uh, to the uh, marine terminal, uh, and therefore uh, the average stay is much shorter. The same thing applies to Chile. If you're familiar with with Chile, their imports, for example, have a methodology uh, known as directo uh, indirecto. Uh, where an importation has to be declared as either direct or indirect prior to discharge. Uh, those that are declared direct, uh, the importer has an obligation to already have all of their documents, all of their documentation, and have customs liberation uh, as soon as that container touches the ground. And typically that container is not on the ground more than four hours. Uh, they will discharge an entire vessel. Uh, take the port of Valparaíso, for example. Uh, they can handle uh, 1.1 million TEUs in a very small strip of land this way. Uh, and these these direct loads, uh, as soon as that container touches the ground and a section of the yard is filled, they have an automated generated, uh, automatically generated appointment system uh, where it goes every two minutes. Eight the first container is to be delivered at 8 o'clock, the next one 8.02, 8.04, 8.06, so on, until that whole block has been delivered. Uh, th this is not seen anywhere else in the world, uh, but as long as you comply with the regulations and, you, and whatever time that they give you, you commit to having a truck driver there to get that load, you're going to receive your box in less than four hours. Um, and then what that does, obviously, uh, it, it frees up space, allows the terminal to have more throughput. Uh, so th for these reasons, that kind of um, describes the discrepancy here that you're showing. But on average, under normal circumstances, we're talking about between 80 and 90 kilowatt per hour uh, KWH per day. Uh, by contrast, uh, I received my power bill this week, and I wanted to see you know, what, what, what the comparison is. Uh, basically, the average consumption from my home uh, is about 47. So basically, one reefer container uh, consumes about as much electricity as this uh, house that I live in. Uh, so it's a, it's a significant amount of energy, uh, and I think as an industry, w w we've kind of neglected this topic. Um, and I think a as the world uh, shifts uh, to more electricity as being the source uh, of energy for things, we're starting to see more electrical cars. In the port space, we're starting to see more electrification projects. Uh, terminals that were previously powered by diesel RTG machines uh, in the Americas um, are, are now electrified. We see big projects in Panama. We see uh, LBCT, uh, big projects in California. All new construction of, of terminals electri electrified. Uh, the, the trend really bucks in about 2015. Uh, the dependence on diesel starts to decline and the dependence on electricity uh, in, in the port space starts to increase. Uh, you, you really start to see things turn around around 2015, and that trend is going to continue. Um, so back to our solution. Um, we're able to provide, as I mentioned before, energy monitoring metrics and statistics in, in real time. Uh, this, what I'm, I'm showing you here, is an example of a one-container facility during the same, this is a, a terminal in Europe, during the same day or, or same time period, okay? Uh, we have two different manufacturers. 
Uh, and I'm not here to endorse one manufacturer versus another. I'm just here to, to show that there's, there's discrepancies and there are differences. Uh, we have one manufacturer where the set point was minus seven. Uh, and we have another manufacturer that I'm displaying on the bottom, which the set point was uh, zero. Uh, and just between these two set point temperatures, remember, this is the same facility, the external temperature is the same, uh, there is basically five times more consumption at minus seven uh, than there is at zero. Uh, but I assure you that when the marine terminal was going to invoice for energy, they invoiced the same amount for bo to both customers. Uh, and that's something that I'm trying to create awareness uh, in the industry uh, is that they've They've taken the approach that we'll, we'll take the average kilowatts and we'll divide it out, and that's what we'll charge each customer the same uh, per hour. That's typically how uh, this energy is invoiced back either to the line or to the to the shipper. Uh, so uh, the, the main thing here, the main point here is uh, I'm, I'm trying to illustrate there is a huge variance uh, between both. Again, both of these containers were in theory frozen. Uh, but there's a huge uh, discrepancy between the two in terms of energy consumption. Uh, here's another example. Uh, this is the same reefer model, okay, uh, but with different set points. So we're talking all things equal. This is the same uh, reefer controller, the same reefer. Uh, one is uh, 18 degrees uh, plus, uh, and the other is seven and a half. So even within the same model, uh, we're still talking about an average um, between 20 and 30% uh, variable from the same facility. This is real data. This is taken from one of our customers' uh, sites. Uh, so that, that's another example. When the, even when the model's the same, the different set points, definitely, they're still a, a variable. Uh, in the next case, uh, this is a different uh, reefer model. These are two different manufacturers, but with the same set point, the result is the same. There's still a, about a 20, 30% uh, variance between energy consumption between the two uh, different brands. Now, there could be extenuating circumstances. We don't know uh, if there was a defrost cycle run. More than likely here there is here as well. Uh, we don't know uh, the, what the humidity setting is. All these things could affect. But at the end of the day, uh, there is a, a difference. Uh, there is a difference, uh, and uh, the, the terminals really need to start accounting for these differences. Uh, I believe the rate should be set dynamically. The rate should be set to incentivize those that are energy efficient uh, and penalize those that are big consumers. Um, that, is one of the, that has been one of the big selling points of our system in the last few years. Uh, I, I point to, uh, for example, APMT, uh, even though they have partnerships with uh, companies that already provide monitoring uh, in their reefer containers, they have been a big supporter of our system and a, and a, and a very important strategic partner of ours. Uh, we last year deployed uh, APMT in Moine uh, in Costa Rica. Moine, is the, if you're not aware, is the largest exporting port for pineapple in the world. Uh, over there, the, the exporter of pineapple has the bad habit uh, of loading that container in the, in the last stretch, shutting those doors and sending it on to the, to the gates of the terminal. Uh, for years, uh, they have been cooling that, running that cool process, uh, but not really being able to measure how much energy was expanded in that process and much less what was the cost associated. So now with our system, uh, they're able to look at that. They're able to analyze that, and they can make uh, decisions. 
uh, it's still a sensitive commercial subject. You know, do we go back and ask the exporter for more money? Uh, but at the very least, what they tell me uh, is that at the end of the year, when, when that customer, that exporter wants his discount uh, and they want to renegotiate the rates, they can say, no, no, sir, with all due respect, here's a report. Here's what you represent to me in extra cost every year. Uh, so it's it's the energy monitoring piece alone uh, has provided, and this is all, when I'm talking about all this, this is what, what I call monitoring, uh, has been able to provide some tremendous value uh, to our customers in this regard. Um, but the next piece is, is the energy management. How do we take this even further? How can these facilities save money? Um, and what, uh, for those of you that are not familiar, I, um, I'm about 20 years into this industry. I started uh, along with Merceline. I've held uh, positions with APMT, with Sirius Gulf, um, Navis, uh, ABB most recently. Uh, I, and, when, and after I joined Identic, I reached out to ABB because I knew that this is something that ABB and Siemens and GE, a lot of these big electrification firms for years, what they've tried to do is they go to an industrial setting, they go to a factory, uh, and they, they present them with a value proposition. It's, hey, we can change some of these light bulbs to LED. We can create, uh, we can put some uh, solar panels on the roof of your factory. We can do battery walls, um, and we can save you some money. And basically, uh, we calculate $100,000 a year savings through this. Uh, so our price is 300000 which is what your savings would be for the first three years. And then from years three through 10, those savings are in your pocket, right? Win-win. But when it came to marine terminals, it was, it was very difficult for them because, number one, they didn't have access to the data. They didn't have access to what were the contents inside of that refrigerated container, what was the set point, and how much energy was that reefer container consuming? Uh, that was an expensive proposition because in order to get that, they would have to have had installed a power meter at every single reefer point in the terminal. And you can imagine, you know, 2,000 reefer points, it's an $800 venture per reefer point. Uh, so I reached out to, to them uh, over a year ago. I said, hey, I got, I've got this system. Would this work? And it turned out that both of our systems were very complementary to each other. We could feed in real time ABB these metrics, the commodity, the set point, and the uh, up to the minute energy consumption, and they in turn could feed that into their software uh, and, and their hardware. Uh, what they do is they install a smart switch uh, and be able to reduce the energy consumption. How do they, how do, they do this? Um, basically, what a lot of folks uh, don't understand is the, the price per kilowatt is set based on two factors, uh, on consumption, and demand. Uh, in the residential market, uh, they typically set the price per kilowatt during the peak demand hour. Uh, in the residential market, that's typically between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. That's when everyone comes home from work. They turn on the, the kitchen. They turn on uh, the television. They turn on the AC. Uh, the energy consumed and the energy demanded on the grid during that time sets the price per kilowatt across the board for 24-7, for 365. Uh, it can be that way in, in the terminal space. Uh, some terminals in some countries, they, they're able to purchase power in advance uh, in, in packages and blocks. Uh, but for the most part, it follows that principle, right, of, of uh, peak pricing. Uh, 
So the idea behind it is, hey, if we can reduce the demand, if we can reduce the consumption during the peak time, we can then lower the rates across the board, the kilowatt uh, per hour rate. Uh, so uh, the, the concept is known as peak shaving. Uh, and, and we're able to feed ABB this data, uh, and they're able to make informed decisions uh, regarding this. And they're they are literally able to cut the power to certain reefers at certain times during this peak. Uh, we understand, and, and what ABB didn't, did not have before, is we understand what the commodity is. We understand that there's vaccines. We understand that there are pharmaceuticals. We understand there are certain commodities you cannot touch. But let's say you have uh, a, a 100 frozen codfish containers uh, on your facility and you are now approaching the peak hour. Will it harm the, the cargo to shut these containers off for 15 minutes? No. Uh, and we, we did this. We did this in a, in a terminal in Spain. And what we found is a 20% reduction in peak uh, demand and a 20% reduction in consumption, which then in turn leads to a 20% reduction in your energy costs. Uh, this was fascinating. Um, there were no claims associated to lost cargo. Uh, the terminal still doesn't want to be known. Uh, we're still under NDA. Uh, because they don't want the market to go back and say, hey, you, you shut off my container now. But there have been no claims. Uh, I can tell you personally, as a personal antidote, some terminals are already doing this. Uh, I, I won't name names, but uh, there are some terminals that during peak seasons, they have more reefers than they have plugs. Uh, and what they are doing is every four hours uh, on, on Frozen, they're going out to the yard, they are unplugging, and then plugging in the ones that weren't connected the last four hours. Uh, there are no claims. There are no there are no damages associated. The, the 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 integrity of the temperatures maintained. And the important thing here is the integrity of the temperatures maintained because of our tag that I showed you in the first slide is maintaining communication with that controller. The second the temperature begins to be, become compromised, we're able to send ABB a message, and they're able to turn that right back on. So from the liner perspective, uh, from the owner of the container. Uh, the, the integrity of the temperatures is maintained. Uh, there's still, like I said, there's still some hesitancy uh, with some. Um, but, but basically the solution uh, or, or the plan for a, a rollout that we're doing uh, is obviously the, 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 the marine terminal purchases our system, starts using the uh, energy monitoring first, identifies trends, identifies the guilty parties, which ones are the ones that are consuming the most? What's our peak hour? When are we consuming the most? Uh, and then uh, during the second phase, we introduce ABB, and they're able to come in with this type of solution. Uh, so uh, basically, the solution on ABB's part uh, has been is, is basically they have an algorithm, a software solution, very similar uh, to what we offer, and a hardware piece, which is that smart switch that I mentioned. Uh, where they're able to remotely uh, cut power uh, in, during those strategic times. Uh, here's uh, an example. Uh, the, the concept uh, and the pricing of this is basically uh, to project an ROI uh, for our customers of less than two years. Um, it, it, it's basically based on a PLC-controlled software 
we control the breaker and the disconnection times and certain sequences, uh, which is very important as well. Uh, there are many countries where power outages are normal. Uh, and what happens when the power goes out? Everything gets shut off. But what happens when the power goes back on? Everything comes back up on online at the same time. What that does then is create that peak, that spike, and the rates go up. So with the system as well, we're able to, when that, when that event occurs, uh, our system is intelligent enough to know the difference between a disconnection and a, and a power uh, short or power uh, cutting off the power. Uh, we're able to stagger and make those staggered starts, right? So which, which will be the first ones to come back on? Are containers with spinach or lettuce, right? Which will be the last ones again, that codfish that I mentioned, right? We're able to re-stagger those starts on those power outages, which also eliminate those peaks. Uh, so this is something that's a, that's available uh, in the market. Um, we've we were obviously 2020 has been uh, a hot mess <laughs> to say the least. Uh, so we we were we had some agreements uh, already to uh, start this off at, at the beginning of the year, but obviously due to the situation and, and ability to travel and go on site and do installation work or whatever. Uh, we have a couple projects uh, in this regard on hold, um, but th this is the future where we're headed with the product. Uh, it, it's, it's very important uh, given the regulations. I mentioned uh, CARB. Uh, California has always been a leader here in the United States in terms of environmental regulations, uh, and, and basically uh, everyone else follows after. Uh, in the automobile manufacturer, if you look at emissions, California has much stronger emission controls, but which auto manufacturer would give the middle finger to California and say, okay, I'm not gonna, I don't, I don't wanna comply, I'm not gonna sell vehicles in California. It's a population of 54 million uh, in this country. So uh, we anticipate kind of the same thing. Uh, they're kind of setting the pace in this regard. Uh, and you know, these type of programs, these type of solutions uh, will become ever more uh, increasingly important. So that's that's uh, what I had today. Thank you. Back to you, Rachel. Thank you very much, uh, Julian. Fantastic presentation. Fascinating topic. And to be able to stitch the pieces together for energy efficiency, as Pawanesh said, you know, these big pieces of infrastructure for cold chain, they need to be energy efficient. Um, and um, this is a topic we've been talking about at COOL, but also in other events where we've met each other as well, um, putting together the energy monitoring and the energy management. Um, yeah, absolutely fascinating. And I think uh, could be a real game changer uh, for uh, a Riva terminal market. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going into our final speaker, conscious we're running a little uh, over on time, but please do stay with us. But also um, any of you listening, um, if you're wanting to find out more, don't forget to uh, head over to the Identech uh, virtual exhibition uh, space uh, via your app um, and make contact with them. Or I'm sure you can all contact uh, Julian um, direct, but I'm sure this is something we'll be coming back to talk about at, uh, at future Cool Logistics events. And thank you again. So um, yes, without further ado, as I said, last but uh, definitely not least, um, it's a real pleasure to uh, uh, welcome Ted Prince as our final speaker of our first virtual event. Um, back to talk to us about cold chain nodes and modes. 
um, and with reference to the US market, I think following well on from Julian. So um, Ted, welcome, thank you, and uh, the floor is yours. Well, uh, thank you, Rachel. It's nice to be back. Uh, good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Attention all ships at sea. So just a quick word about Tiger Cool Express. My partner and I uh, started it seven years ago. It took us about three years to raise the money. We're an asset-based 3PL. We own 723 refrigerated containers. They're completely equipped with uh, GPS so we can monitor and control them from wherever they are. These are 53-foot containers, which are the domestic standard. Um, they are um, about 66,000 BTU, which is about 15% more of the, the standard of, of what you have in Europe and elsewhere in the ISO world. They're completely self-contained. They have their own um, refrigeration unit, their own compressor. They have a 130-gallon reefer tank, um, and uh, that's uh, we're running them all across North America. I have spent my career in the intermodal business, and when we talk about our competition, the, the competition is really the truck. And when we were raising money, uh, the private equity people always ask you the same question, how big's the market? Well, we told them it's really big. What's your share? About 2%. Uh, they like that. It's a you know, $10 billion market. And then they would say, well, who's your competition? And we'd say, what's well, the truck? It's an owner-operator. And they'd say, who's an owner-operator? And uh, my partner would go on, and their eyes would roll back in their head. Um, in the 1979, the United States deregulated both rail and truck. And what used to be an employee-owned employee model with really union uh, drivers became an owner-operator model, an independent contractor. And these independent contractors sort of became popular culture heroes. Um, the movie Smokey and the Bandit is kind of an iconic uh, movie about somebody uh, with Burt Reynolds and Jerry Reed transporting a trailer load of beer, um, a lot of songs. But basically, these were the new cowboys and the new outlaws. They pretty much did what they wanted, how they wanted, and safety was really not managed. There were laws. They weren't really um, enforced. You had log books, but um, about your second day on the job, you were taught how to run multiple log books in case you got pulled over by the police. Um, and this business was very much attracted, mutually attracted to the perishable business. They needed transportation. They wanted it fast. They didn't want to pay for air freight. There was still some domestic air there. But they wanted it fast. They wanted it cheap. Um, and these owner-operators were the ways to do it. So the intermodal competitive equation uh, had, uh, until the last several years, pretty much looked like this, is you have a cost function. Uh, the, red, the red line is truck, and the blue line is using rail intermodal. 
these two lines are at fuel at $5 a gallon, and this is at $2 a gallon. And what this shows, which has always been fairly intuitive in the intermodal business, is the cheaper the price of fuel, the longer the length of haul needed for rail to compete with truck. And you can see here, it's about 1,500 miles, whereas when fuel gets very expensive, you can compete on a shorter length of haul. Um, and this is where the lines cross, is where rail can compete with truck. And it's probably a little fuzzy because usually you need to offer some sort of discount to the customer for them to use rail instead of truck. Because the discussion would usually go like this. We're selling intermodal. Oh, I remember Joe. He used intermodal once. It didn't work. Joe got fired. We never used intermodal again. But the service has improved in dry. It's become the really the de facto transport mode. And my partner and I recognized that there was an opportunity here because most of the moves are long haul transcontinental business and there were opportunities there. The challenge is that when you're moving dry, dry freight, you're moving it between um, very large population centers, ports, major cities, and their intermodal facilities nearby so that the pickup and delivery distance are very short. When you start talking about produce, you're moving out to the farms. You're moving to areas that are removed from the major cities. So for instance, if we're moving apples out of the Pacific Northwest, we're going out to Richland and picking up the box, loading it, bringing it back to Seattle and putting it on the train. So think about it, 250 miles empty, load 250 miles back, put it on the train, 250 miles. That's 800 miles that we have to handle and the truck is starting at zero. So that has been a, a significant challenge in being able to compete and bring this business to the, um, to the rail. A great deal of produce, most of it is purchased FOB. So supermarket retailers are buying it, um, they're buying a case of grapes at $5 a carton. And that includes the freight. So they're really not thinking about, well, this is uh, intermodal is environmentally benign or that um, this is a better way to do it. They're just saying, if intermodal costs $5.10 a carton and truck costs $5 a carton, we're gonna go with the truck. So that has been the challenge, um, overcoming this security in this remote location. Um, and when you look here and think about where the major produce areas are, there's significant distances. Eastern Washington, Salinas, which is the lettuce bowl of the world, Bakersfield, the uh, Kern Valley where citrus, more and more produce is coming out of Mexico now, either across Nogales or um, south of Laredo. These are the markets that we're going to need to serve in order to keep pace with what our customers are requiring from us. Now, about seven years ago, um, the, the rules on the hours of service changed. 
there had always been a rule that you could only be driving for 11 hours a day. That That's based on fatigue research and, and what have you. But what happened was that they finally said, you know what, instead of these paper logbooks, we're going to require electronic logging devices, which are connected to the engine and will know when you're moving and when you're not. And we're going to keep track of that. And all of a sudden, literally overnight, the entire long haul trucking market changed. If you look at this, this red line, this red column here, there are frequently truckers driving 18 hours a day at 60 miles an hour, 1,000 miles a day. That's how they could sit in California and say, I'll be 3,000 miles away in three days. You just can't do that legally. Um, but at 40 miles, 40 cents a mile, they could do pretty well. But what's happened now is what you could do is over here now. You're really at about 450 miles per day. And all of a sudden, that has changed everything. And you can see down here the breakdown of when you could drive and when you can't and what the driver cost per mile looks like. The economics have changed significantly. So what's happened now is that whereas you could make $900 a day before ELDs by running illegally, in order to stay at that level, you're going to have to increase the rate per hour that you charge or that you make. You have a 33% reduction in the number of hours you drive. You're going to have to have a corresponding increase in the rate per mile to make that driver um, indifferent. And the, um, the demographics of most of these people, they're um, you know, they're uh, what my daughter would tell me would be male, pale, and stale. There are very few people of color, very few people under 55, predominantly male, non-college educated. Uh, they got into this business 30 years ago. You don't see anybody wanting to get into this business anymore. So we're looking at a driver shortage. And that's good for intermodal. Now, when you think about what's happening, these, these moves that are transcontinental, um, you know, these are sort of the major law uh, between Bakersfield and Fresno, two major perishable locations to the two big produce markets in New York and Boston. In the past, by running illegally, they could do about 35, 36 round trips a year. Now, running legally, they can only do 20. So that's a significant reduction. That's a 40% reduction in capacity. And when you don't see new people wanting to get into this business, that's a great opportunity for intermodal. And this has changed the whole nature of intermodal in the last several years. Because what used to happen is going back to that slide I showed earlier, it was always about the price of fuel. And this chart, uh, these two columns, the second and the fourth, show what happens with the price of fuel. As the price of fuel goes up, the cost per mile goes up, and intermodal becomes more competitive. On the other hand, now, 
the cost of the driver is comparable to the cost of fuel. So what you have here is this is the old case with fuel at $4 a gallon. This is the new case with $2 a gallon fuel, but the increased price of the driver. And now it's pretty much comparable. And when fuel goes up, intermodal becomes the very clear winner. And this is changing how we now can approach and how we can handle all of these opportunities and convert them to rail. So intermodal intuitively or has certain, uh, pardon me my allergies here. Welcome to Kansas. Um, there are a lot of other economic drivers that are impacting. Um, obviously the cost of drivers, tolls as, as infrastructure becomes a problem. Insurance is becoming a real game changer. Um, a lot of companies are going out of business because they can't get insured. And there's a requ federal requirement, which may increase as to the amount of insurance the motor carrier has to have. Um, it's also with safety, with drug testing now, um, in just six months, 35,000 truck drivers have been disqualified from driving and they have not returned to the market. There's a return process. No one has taken advantage of it. Intermodal also has advantages in terms of moving empty and handling surges. Um, in the United States, um, your Wednesday newspaper is always the biggest because it has all the supermarket um, advertisements for Friday and Saturday. So everything needs to be in the distribution center Thursday night to be in the stores on Friday. It's not a level, level load during the week. Um, intermodal by its very nature because it's using rail has a 40% lower carbon footprint. Um, you're seeing electric uh, tractors, especially in drayage, which do not have to go long distance. Um, but one thing we're very proud of, we just offered a carbon-free load um, opportunity where even though our carbon footprint is lower, um, we can offset that through a partnership um, with people in the in Amazon planting trees to offset all of the carbon that may have been emitted during the course of the load. But I think the thing that's most important is we've been talking about the modes here. Let's talk a little bit about the nodes. Intermodal grew by running long trains, fewer long trains between fewer points. We now have a thing in the US called precision scheduled railroading. I won't bore you with all the details, but it involves a cohabitation of different types of carload traffic over the same network. That gives you that gives us the opportunity to serve smaller intermodal ramps. And if you go back to that slide earlier where I showed you where the produce is coming from, all of them have opportunities in the very near future to have new smaller intermodal ramps. Um, you know, we'll have to move an empty in and then move it out of the Northwest or the Imperial or Kern Valleys, uh, down in Nogales, coming into Texas. I think it's a real exciting opportunity because the dry market is pretty much predominated by intermodal. This is actual truckload conversion 
that would be new business to the railroads. They're very excited about working with it. There were a lot of issues with produce. Uh, the two speakers have uh, spoken about it. There's also a lot of new federal regulation on food safety, but we think we can offer an environmentally benign, economically attractive, competitively um, with competitive transit times. So we're very excited about what the cold chain and intermodal will be doing together. Back to you, Rachel. Rachel, do we have you? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yes, you do have me. Apologies, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my daughter just popped in the room, so uh, one of the issues of running a virtual event. <laughs> so <laughs> I just turned off my camera for a minute. Oh, well, thank you both. Thank you all for uh, yeah, fascinating closing session. Um, and Ted, at the end, um, the discussion about how to uh, sort of densify, if you'd like, I think, intermodal uh, cold chain um, through the developments taking place in what's probably the biggest intermodal market in the world at the moment. Um, really, pretty interesting. So um, we have run over, I know, um, but I wouldn't want to close without a chance for a few sort of follow-up uh, follow remarks and uh, see if we've got any, any, any questions. What I have here is a couple more, a couple of observations actually for Pawanesh um, from um, Manoj Nair, who's uh, one of our delegates, is working with the Port of Rotterdam. Um, and apropos your um, end statement, Pawanesh, he's said uh, because a lot of automotive companies should also start building uh, cold vehicles of different sizes to cater uh, for the market, as there's a lot of scarcity on the on the on the vehicle level for smaller uh, smaller cold cold vehicles. You're on mute, Baronesh. Yeah, uh, I assume he's talking about uh, a last mile delivery uh, for both vaccine making in the cold chain. Yes, yes. He said different sizes. But... Yes, uh, maybe. Uh, there's an advantage to it as well. Um, as uh, from a vaccination viewpoint, as you move from area to area, doing geographical uh, cluster-based uh, mass vaccination, the vehicles, those carrier vehicles can also move, so you don't have to build static infrastructure, bring out better capital use efficiency, resources efficiency, yes, sure. It's been interesting for me to see how this session has, to some great extent, actually evolved around the energy question and issue, both in the modes and the, and the nodes. Uh, and so for, for um, uh, Julian, um, Going forwards, one of the questions I've asked, actually, or going backwards, if I may, uh, one of the questions I've often asked of, because um, um, I've run a lot of port and terminal events, um, and there hasn't always been, as some speakers said earlier, that much engagement um, with the reefer market. And I've talked to both ports and terminals um, and the equipment manufacturers to say, hey, do you guys talk to each other, you know, about what happens when your kit, your equipment hits, you know, hits a terminal and what the process is and what the issues are for them. And in the past, at least, you know, the answer's quite often been, and the same in reverse, the answer's quite often been no. Um, but so it seems to me that with your technology, um, your 
kind of attempting to bridge that gap as well as have visibility to what's in the box and how it impacts energy. So are you talking to the reefer OEMs as well? As we, identic? we constantly uh, have to, Rachel, because uh, they make uh, enhancements, they make changes to the protocols uh, that they use to communicate. So we always have to be up to date uh, with what those are. And um, so we, we have annual meetings, for example, with Merce Container Industries in, in Denmark um, to keep up to the date with uh, those protocols. Because the second we don't or are unable to communicate with one of their brands or one of their models or one of their controllers, uh, you know, that damages our reputation and, and inhibits our ability to sell. Uh, but in regards to energy, we have not yet. Um, uh, and I don't know uh, how that conversation would go just yet. Uh, yeah. Because what, as you, you know, as you can see in, in the presentation, you know, they're, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> You're getting some fascinating insights. Uh, yeah. the, data, the data you presented um, is um, extremely interesting. And as I said, I'm looking forward to watching this back uh, on recording uh, as well. Um, so, Ted, sorry you're suffering with uh, with allergy, uh, cancer's allergies, and thank you so much for for turning out uh, whilst doing so. Um, if I could ask you, you know, what are the next steps? If you go, like, put yourself forward five years, you know, what what are your hopes and expectations for uh, our reefer on rail, as we've been referring to it uh, today? I think that. Um it will follow similar to dry um you move into the long haul markets first and then you move into the short haul markets in addition there are certain commodities that still um intermodal doesn't want to touch um they're either incredibly high value such as pharmaceuticals um, because we're a 3PL, we're limited really to the liability that the railroads will accept, which is $100,000. Um, you put 28 pallets in one of our boxes, one pack of pharmaceuticals could exceed that. Um, and then you have other um, commodities such as berries that are fragile and need a very um, quick transit time. So, for instance, you know, a major retailer consolidates its shipments in California and sends mixed loads of various commodities directly to their DCs or store. They bypass the DC directly to the store. Um, and the most perishable commodity, there may be 45,000 pounds of produce in there. If there are 2,000 pounds of blueberries, the blueberries will determine what the transit is. And for now, that precludes intermodal. But I think as congestion and, and the rail service, as congestion on the highway gets worse and rail service gets better, I think we'll start moving into those, those commodities as well. I mean, I am very cognizant of my former life when we were running a, an intermodal service to export chilled beef and pork to Japan. Uh, there was a railroad problem and I had to charter a 747. So. Yeah. Um, the, the cost of quality is high. 
that is uh, uh, perhaps a, a good note to uh, to end our session on and uh, reflecting back over the last few days, you know, that's what we're seeing all over with reefer and cold chain with uh, reefer shipping. Um, that uh, the, the uh, previous conversation maybe about being driven by low rates is um, it's not what we're going to be facing in the future. And I think Pavanesh made that point clearly about, you know, it's what you're able to deliver and the value you can derive from that rather than just seeking the uh, uh, lowest cost for the process of delivery. Um, so, a gentleman, thank you so much for being our closing speakers. Pawanish, thank you so much for um, spending time to, to talk with us, uh, Judith and Ted. Um, this is the final session. We do have our open mic networking session now for anyone who wants to head over there. Um, but yes, all that remains for me to do is thank you very much for um, closing up uh, so in such an interesting fashion. And uh, we hope we will see you again uh, at the next event or maybe in the networking session to follow. Thank Great. you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Stay well. Thank you, Richard. Julian, Ed, see you guys. Bye. -bye. Bye. Cheers. Cheers.